Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. This is um, the account of Peter confessing Jesus Christ and, and, and doing so in a way that, that really sums up uh, what the gospel has been leading us to, the gospel of Matthew. Uh, recognizing Jesus Christ as Lord and Messiah and Savior. And Peter capturing for us much of what that means. He, he, the Gospel of Matthew, most of the time, the, the merely human characters in the, in the Gospel, when they speak of Jesus, they speak more than what they know, but they speak truly. So when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he, he even is speaking perhaps beyond what he knows, but he He's speaking something that is true, profoundly true. Uh, And it points us to faith in Christ. It's my understanding that you all are um, going through the solas of the Reformation in the the month of October, leading towards Reformation Sunday, where we all sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, uh, next Sunday. We're all looking forward to that. So today we're thinking about faith alone. It is by faith in Christ that God accepts us before him and uh, forgives us of our sins and declares us to be righteous in his sight. So Matthew 16, 13 through 20, please forgive that longer introduction. Let us hear God's holy word. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. For your son's sake. Amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, those well-loved by the Savior, are we building our lives on the rock of Christ, a rock on which we can stand only as we believe in him by true faith? Are we building our lives on the rock? For those of you who remember the 90s, it's getting farther away than most of us like to think about. If you remember the 90s, and if you're a sports fan, maybe if I hum a tune, you're certain to know what I'm immediately talking about. That's the NBA on NBC tune. We've got some nods going on. I know Phil, Phil and I have conspicuously lived like the same exact life. We were both pastor's kids. We both were obsessed with basketball growing up. We both like golf just a little bit now, just slightly uh, but that was the NBA on NBC Tune, and, and one of the most common commercials for the NBA on NBC was Prudential. And the Prudential commercials were this build your life on the rock, and, and uh, they had many different 
logos that were very similar. They were all pictures of the Rock of Gibraltar right there at the mouth of the Mediterranean Sea, which I didn't know that at the time. You come to figure out that this is kind of an important sliver of land right there uh, at the mouth of the Mediterranean Sea. But the idea of prudential, it's, it's in their name. Invest your money, save your money, diversify all that you do with your money, and if you can do that over the course of a long period of time, you're building your life on a rock, a solid foundation that you will be able to count on later in life. Well, that's a good thing to to do, isn't it? It's going to be wise with the resources that God gives to us, but that is not to the Christian what it means to build your life on the rock. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Jesus is called the cornerstone. And are we building our lives on him and on him alone? And and the Apostle Peter takes that great step in this passage. He teaches us, what does it mean to build your life on the rock of Christ? It begins with this confession of Christ, confessing Christ, our only hope. Remember what Jesus says to him after Peter makes this great confession. Jesus says, who do you all say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. Blessed are you, Peter. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. He receives that blessing from God simply by confessing what he knows about Jesus. A confession that comes from the heart. So if we are to receive that blessing, brothers and sisters, we need to do the same. We must confess Christ from our hearts. We must trust in his work, which covers all of our sins and which gives us blessing with God. So we are confronted with that question. Is that blessing, blessed are you, Peter, blessed are you, whatever your name is, is that blessing one that we would receive because of what we are confessing with our hearts and with our mouths and with our lives? Are you building your life? On the rock, brothers and sisters, let us consider these things together. First off, is your confession of Christ, what you hold to be true about him, was that your good idea or was it God's good grace? Was it your good idea or was it God's good grace? First, what is the the context, the setting uh, for this passage? They are here in Caesarea Philippi. That's the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, as you're walking through Matthew, it's easier to know. But since we're, we're coming on this passage just as a one-off, I'll explain it to you. If you can think about uh, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin. And Lake Michigan is like the Sea of Galilee. Okay, that, That's a, a bigger scale than what we're talking about, but that helps you get some of the sense. Jewish territory would be basically Illinois and some of Wisconsin as it hugs Lake Michigan at the time of Jesus. Gentile territory would be certainly the other side of the lake. And Caesarea Philippi would have been going around the lake. So if you're coming from my house in Illinois and you're kind of wrapping around the lake, Caesarea Philippi would be you keep going up Lake Michigan and you go all the way up a couple hours into Michigan, that would be like where Caesarea Philippi is. And that's where Peter is going to make this confession. That's significant because they are in Gentile territory. And to the mind of the Israelite, the Jewish religious person in that day, their religious life was deeply bound up with where they were, 
When they wanted to worship God, they went to Jerusalem for all of the feasts. Remember all those times in Jesus' life where people are gathering in Jerusalem because what it meant to worship God and to to commune with him uh, in, in a rich way was deeply bound up with where you were. But uh, one of the things that's significant here is that Peter is going to make this confession and receive this blessing from God the Son in Gentile territory, far-flung. This is about as far away from Jerusalem as Jesus gets in his entire life. They are way out there. And Caesarea Philippi was Gentile territory. It was enemy territory. It's, it's at the base of Mount Hermon, which would have been this mountain that would have been snow-covered very beautiful all year round, but it was the place in the mind of the Israelite, the religious Jewish person of that day, this would have been a place where rebellious angels would have come down from heaven and rebelling against God would have spread wickedness throughout the world leading up to the flood in Genesis 6. So this was an infamous place in the mind of the Israelite and it's going to be at the base of this mountain in Caesarea Philippi, that Peter will make this confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He receives the blessing from Jesus. And what does that signify? That signifies that all of the spreading wickedness before the time of Christ, now God is going to go to battle against all of those things, all of those spiritual forces of darkness, and he is going to be reclaiming territory through his Son. As people confess Christ and say he is the Lord, he is the true son of the living God, what is God doing? He's he's remaking his world. He's remaking hearts, those who have rebelled against him. And so it's very significant where they are. It shows us that as the church of Jesus Christ, that which we know now, that, that geography, while in some sense significant, it's not the way that it used to be. If you want to worship God, you don't need to go to Jerusalem. You need to be enrolled uh, as a citizen of heaven. And that happens through our faith in Christ. So then getting to this question, Jesus is curious. uh, What are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am? And uh, it it gets to this question of uh, what's the idea about me? Are people forming Ideas. Well, yes, they were. And so the response is, well, some say you're John the Baptist. King Herod was very worried about that. Is this John the Baptist who's come back from the dead? Remember, he had John the Baptist killed at a, a dinner party gone wrong, right? Way wrong, got way off track. And John the Baptist is killed. And Herod has said, well, maybe this is John the Baptist. And he was a mighty man, did mighty works and wonders. So some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah a prophet who works miracles. Some say one of the later prophets, perhaps Jeremiah or others. The point of this is that there was no unified response to who Jesus is. Now, when we say something like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed today, that's a great blessing because uh, we've arrived at this unified response of who Jesus is. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, buried, descended to hell, he rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand. That, that, that's a great blessing that we have this unified response as the church of Jesus Christ to who we say Jesus is. But there was no unified response uh, in that time. 
Jesus says, so then who do you say that I am? Now, he doesn't ask Peter specifically. He says, who do you all say that I am? That's what we say. We would say that in Illinois. But I know in Indiana, you guys have, there's a lot of geography south of us. So I can tease you as Indiana residents. People in Indiana say, y'all. Who do y'all say that I am? So who do you all say that I am? And then Peter becomes the spokesman. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, what is significant about this? Well, many things. But one of the reasons that it's very significant is what are the things that uh, the Pharisees often demand from Jesus? Give us a sign. Prove to us who you are, and then we will decide whether or not we're going to say something good about you. That's kind of the way it goes in the Gospels, isn't it? But Jesus summons Peter here, and he says, I want to hear from you. Who do you say that I am? So there's no sign given. Jesus does not give Peter a sign. He wants to know, what do you believe about me? That means that Peter is confessing Christ in terms of his knowledge and in terms of what's flowing out of his heart. So who is the person who's in charge of this situation? Is it Peter or is it Jesus? See, that the Pharisees always want to be in charge. Give us a sign. And we will be the judge of that sign, and we will decide what we want to say about you. Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to say who I am. Jesus is in charge here because Jesus is always in charge. So in other words, inherent in Peter's confession is that Jesus Christ is Lord. All he can do is come to him and say, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You have authority over me. And all I can do is throw myself before you and receive what you are pleased to give me. And that's all any of us can do, isn't it, brothers and sisters? We are not in charge when it comes to us and God, when it comes to us and Christ. All we can do is come to him and receive that which he is pleased to give to us as we say who we know him to be. So Peter recognizes Jesus' office. You are the Christ. He recognizes his person. You are the son of the living God. In all of these things, what he's showing to us is true faith. We're going to talk about true faith in our confession of the Heidelberg Catechism later. And Peter shows us true faith here, which is knowledge. I know something true about you, Jesus. Not only do I know it to be true, but I assent to its truth. I I, I believe that it is true. And then I trust coming from that knowledge. It's knowledge. It's trust. And it's also submission and worship. Inherent in Peter's confession is that Jesus is worthy of, of worship. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now think about this. Here we are at the, ba- the base of Mount Hermon, and all of this idol worship, all of this false worship has, has kind of seeped out into the world from here. And Peter, at this very same place, comes and falls down before Jesus, in a sense, with his confession, the f- confession of his heart, and says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of Of the living God. I submit to you. I worship you. It's a beautiful picture, that reversal 
of all the false worship that's gone forth. And Jesus says, blessed are you. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Peter has not worked righteousness in his life. He doesn't come to to Jesus and say, here's the list of all the good things that I've done. And in addition to that, I'm going to say what I think about you. And then because of all of that body of work, because of what I confess with my mouth and because of what I've done in my life, now I'm going to receive this blessing. Is that what happens? No. He says, I believe in you. I trust in you. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. But he also says this, this, is, this, this isn't your idea. The only one who can confess such a thing is one who has been revealed that from the Father. Jesus says, that wasn't your good idea. That was God's good grace. Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. And so anyone, as we believe as we read this text, anyone who comes to this confession of Christ, it comes not from their own mind, not from their own good idea. It comes because God is working in them. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you trust in him, if you've made this kind of good confession that Peter makes, who receives the credit for that? Well, God does. So we're reminding ourselves of the solas of the Reformation this month. And here we see, who is the one who receives all of the glory? Well, it's the Lord who works in us. And you guys will be reminded of that or will, or maybe have been reminded of that already. John Newton uh, is probably my favorite Christian uh, writer. And he, he sums it up this way. He says, he found us when we did not seek him. Then we began to seek him. And he was pleased to be found by us. That's a wonderful way of putting it, isn't it? Kids or boys and girls or anybody else, you remember hide and seek? Who knows how to play the game hide and seek, right? We know how to play that game. When we're talking about finding the Lord, finding God, when parents begin to play hide and seek with their young children, what will they do? They'll go and they'll hide. Kids have very short fuse with these kinds of things. Not much patience. They'll get very frustrated if they can't find you within seconds. Sometimes you'll let them hide. You finish counting and they'll wait one, two, three and jump out. Ah, you know, that kind of thing. But this is like the parent who goes and hides and the child is very frustrated about a minute in. Dad, where are you? Where are you? So what does the dad say? I'm over here. Let's him know what side of the house he's on. Says it again. I'm over here, lets him know what room he's in. I'm over here, lets him know that he's in the closet of that room, right? The child is really not the one that's finding the parent. The parent keeps calling out. And then the child finds the parent. And what does the parent do? Good job, you found me. You found me. That was awesome. Good job, buddy. That's what it is like with the Lord. He summons us to him. He's always in control. He's always in charge. We would not find him if he did not tell us where he was, if he did not summon us to him. Then we find him. And John Newton says, and he was pleased to be found by us. It's God's good grace working in us that gives us faith. Then secondly, this, is Peter the leader of all believers Or is he a leader in believing? This is the passage that uh, the Roman Catholic Church believes 
the, the papacy starts, that, that God, Jesus recognizes Peter as some kind of head of the church. And that's not what's going on here. He's not a special leader of all believers. He is a believer in, in leading. Or sorry, I didn't say that right. He, uh, he's, he's a leader in believing. He's the first one to confess this faith. So all of the trappings of the Roman Catholic papacy uh, is not here in this passage Peter has assumed the role of kind of a, the spokesman of the disciples. If you go through the Gospels, he's almost always the one who responds. He's almost always the one uh, who gives the answer. In Matthew 15, for instance, Peter said to him, Jesus, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also without understanding? In other words, the disciples would often send Peter to Jesus. Go ask him. You ask him. Why? Peter was likely the oldest of uh, the close inner ring of the disciples who would come be, become the apostles. He's often the one who speaks up. He's kind of the mouthpiece of all the, the close, the 12, as we read. Jesus said to them in John 6, Do you all want to leave me? Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So all of the experiences of Peter, whether it goes good or whether it goes badly, and it goes both ways, doesn't it? He's commended by Jesus. He's often rebuked by Jesus. Those are the kinds of things that are experienced by all of the 12 apostles. They are commended often uh, for their faith. They are, in chapter 18, they are given also the keys of the kingdom, which Jesus says seemingly directly to Peter here. They are called, admonished, rebuked in fear, failure, and doubt. All of them likely did something similar to what Jesus did on the night when he was betrayed. Remember, Peter denies Jesus. They all did something like that, and yet Peter is singled out in that kind of way. And so he is a first among equals. He's a spokesman for the 12 apostles. It's nothing like what you see in the Roman Catholic Church with the papacy, he is the first one to confess this kind of faith in Christ at this point in the gospel. And for that reason, he becomes kind of a, a cornerstone of believing faith. An example to all of us. He becomes an example not only to the twelve, but he becomes an example for all Christians. We all experience something like Peter when we go to the gospel of Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. You read the stories and you, you read about Peter, you say, that's kind of like my life. There is much in my life where God would look to me and perhaps commend what he sees. He would see someone who's relying upon him, someone who's seeking to follow him. But there are many things that the Lord would see in my life that need to be corrected. Many times I step out of turn and say something that I should not say, whether it be to the Lord or to someone else. Many times where my thinking is backwards and needs to be corrected. You see, in that sense, Peter is a leader in believing. He's an example for all of us. One author says this, when Peter at once heeds the call of Jesus, remember, Jesus calls Peter and he immediately follows. 
When Peter heeds the call of Jesus or when he exhibits great faith or when he confesses Jesus to be the Messiah or when he receives and obeys the commands of Jesus or shows himself to be repentant, he stands out as a wholesome example for the members of the church. On the other hand, when he gives way to fear and doubt and little faith, when he rejects the words of Jesus, when he threatens to undo his call to discipleship by becoming a stumbling block or fails to persevere and watch with prayer in time of temptation, or when he denies Jesus, he stands out as a sharp warning to post-Easter Christians. You see, this mold of Peter, we all can relate to it. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. Lots to commend, lots that God would commend, and lots that God needs to correct. Do you have anything, brothers and sisters, that God would commend, but also that God would correct? Yes, we all do, don't we? And so what's the lesson? Well, the lesson is that Peter is receiving that blessing on the basis of his faith in Christ, even though he still has a lot to work on in his life. And so it's an example for all of us. So then as we close, we can consider this uh, together and make some application for our lives. Are we secure in Christ or are we sinking in a sea of self? Are we secure in Christ or are we sinking in the sea of self? Peter's life is far from perfect. Peter's faith is far from perfect. And yet we find the confidence that we ought to have in the response that Jesus gives to him. Blessed are you, Simon. We talked about... uh, prudential and investment at the beginning. You know, Peter's spiritual portfolio is not diversified at all. He has bought only one kind of stock. He has put all of his eggs into this one basket of Jesus Christ. And All of us need to do that in terms of our spiritual portfolio. We don't take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, a little bit of the Christian gospel, a little bit of New Age moralism, a little bit of this other thing over here, and we kind of put that all in a blender, and then we we, we take that as our spiritual nutritional shake. Right? What a disaster. Our spiritual portfolio, all of the eggs are in the basket of Jesus Christ. And if it is any other way, we do not receive that blessing that Jesus says. He's put all of his eggs in the basket. And that is why Jesus can even in some sense say that he is a rock. Peter, you are a rock. Why? Because of his life? Because he is a pope? No, because he sets an example for us in believing. Because he points to one who is greater than he is. Because he shows us what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is to come before Jesus Christ and say, you are the Savior. I trust in you. I give my life to you. I buy all of my stock in you. And in that sense, He shows us what it means to be secure. Friends, is this what you have done? Is this your plea? We sang about it. Christ is my only plea. Christ is all that I have. Returning once again to some of John Newton's thoughts, he says this. 
A Christian's hope is based not on our unsettling feelings of joy in Christ, but on Christ himself. You feel good about where you are in your Christian life? Great. You feel confident about what the Lord is doing in your life? Awesome. But your plea is not in yourself. It is in your Savior. He goes on. Look unto Jesus. This is the duty, the privilege, the safety, the unspeakable happiness of a believer. All are comprised in that one sentence. Look unto Jesus. Your whole life is to be a looking unto Christ. And as you behold him more and more, the Lord forms in your heart more affection, more love for him, and he will cause you to be more like him. He will cause you to be more submissive to him. He will cause it to be your delight to lay your life down. My hope is built not upon frames or feelings, but upon the atonement and the mediation of Christ. As Jesus speaks these words, uh, a shift in redemptive history is happening. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It all happens, it all turns on this question. The confession of Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. It all turns on that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? What flows forth out of your heart? You see, in Christ, the gates of heaven are open wide. They're open wide as you believe in him and as you trust in him. But nothing else will fling wide those gates. What is our only hope? Our only hope is to begin by confessing with Peter, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Friends, is this what you have done? Are you building your life upon the rock the rock of Christ. Your righteousness will fail you. Your feelings will waver. Your good works are as nothing before the infinitely holy God. But blessed is the one who says Jesus is Lord and Christ, the Son of the living God. For if you confess Christ before men, you can be assured that he will confess you before his Father who is in heaven. By God's grace, may he produce in all of us that true and living and vital faith that looks to Christ alone for our salvation, that rests in him alone for our security, and that continues beholding his beauty to form in us a heart that wants to be like him more and more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look unto your word And might you, by your grace, help us to stand upon the solid rock of Christ, an example that we see here in this passage. Thank you for the wonderful gospel of faith alone, and through that faith we are reconciled to you. We give you all the glory and praise and honor, and thank you especially, O Father, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to live and to die in our place. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.